Well, once again, if you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to turn to the book of 1 John chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the foyer on the desk. And I, I hope, uh, if you don't mind me to encourage you, if you don't often bring your Bible, that you might uh, make that your practice. And that whenever you're at a Bible study or listening to a sermon, that you would follow along. You know, we talk about the Bereans all the time in the book of Acts. And what did they do? They, Paul preached to them, and it says that, that they searched the scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul said were so. And so that is commended to us. They're called, they were, it was said they were more noble-minded than the, than the uh, folks in the previous town, Thessalonica, because they did that. So I hope that you will follow along. I hope you will not take my word for anything, but will follow along, see if what I'm saying as I'm preaching is what the text says and what the cross-references say as well. But uh, if you have a Bible, if you uh, turn to 1 John 4, we're going to look at 1 John 4, 16 to 21. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Give ear to the word of God, 1 John 4, starting in verse 16 through 21. John writes, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it serves as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you that your word uh, is not as other books and not as the word of men, but is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that your word does not return void, but always accomplishes your purposes in us uh, when it goes forth. We ask once again that you might be pleased in your kindness and mercy to us to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word and make us by your spirit doers of your word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. But we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you were here last Sunday, uh, if you weren't, I'll catch you up briefly. Uh, we looked at verses 13 to 16. You'll notice I've overlapped this sermon text with that one by one verse. There's a reason for that. Uh, but we saw there that John said in that passage that the way that we are to know or one of the main ways that we can know that we are truly uh, the people of God and born again and, and saved in Christ Jesus is by the indwelling uh, and gift of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of every believer. It's by that that we know that we are saved. In verse 13, John said, by this we know, it's a phrase he uses a lot in this, in this book, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, how? Because he has given us of his spirit, of his Holy Spirit. And in that passage, if you were here last week, we looked at two things that John says about the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers that indicate to us in our proof or evidence uh, of the reality of the presence of the, of the Holy Spirit in us and that we are truly born again unto salvation. And those two things were, one, 
the confession of faith in Jesus Christ that he is, to quote verses 14 and 15, that we confess that he is the Savior of the world and the Son of God. Those are the things we confess to believe about Christ. And the second thing, the second evidence that we are to look for about the work of the Holy Spirit in us is our abiding in the love of God. Elsewhere in the book, he also mentions obedience to God's commandments. Those are the basic three things throughout the book of 1 John that the Apostle John instructs us to look for, not as grounds of our salvation. We are not saved because we do these things. We're not saved because we abide in love. They are the evidence of salvation in us. They are the evidence of the work of God through his Holy Spirit in everyone who believes. And the two things that John pointed to in, the, in last week's passage were confessing faith in Christ and not just the Christ of our own imagination that some tend to do, but we confess he's the Son of God. We confess he is the Savior of the world and we abide in love. Well, now in our text in verse 17, the Apostle John is still continuing that same, that same train of thought, that same subject. He's still talking about abiding in love. And what he does here in the text we're looking at this morning is he connects the dots uh, to spell out for us exactly what he means by what he said in the previous verses. So it is by the abiding in the love of God that he says in verse 17 that this love is perfected with us or in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Remember that the main subject that John is dealing with in 1 John is that of assurance, assurance of salvation. And what is assurance essentially about if it's not about having, quote, confidence in the day of judgment? That's really what it's all about. Am I right with God? When you're, when you're lacking assurance, that's, the, that's really the thing you're struggling with. Am I reconciled to God? Do I have peace with God? Am I actually a believer in Christ? Those are the questions that you ask. And so John spells it out in no uncertain terms about it being about having confidence uh, in the day of judgment. The opposite of confidence, the opposite of assurance is fear. And so John in verse 18, you might, maybe you noticed this as I was reading it, Four times in that one verse, John mentions fear over and over and over again, and he contrasts that with love. You could say that in our text, John is contrasting fear with faith, or at least with the fruits of faith. Uh, New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce puts it this way. He says, Christian confidence and Christian love go together. They find their antithesis in shame and fear. And that's really what John is saying in our text. Christian uh, confidence or assurance and Christian love are intertwined. They go together as a pair in many ways. And the opposite of that is shame and fear. That's the essence of what John teaches us throughout our passage, that Christian confidence and Christian love go together. In fact, in verse 18, John says something. Maybe you've read this passage before and thought, what does that mean? He says, perfect love does what? Casts out fear. It's the same kind of word used for casting out a demon. It's like taking something and it, the word means to throw. So it's not just kind of moving it to the side. It's, it's, it's chucking it. It's getting rid of it. He's saying perfect love casts out fear. It, there's no room for it when you have been perfected in the love of God. And so this morning we want to look briefly at what it means uh, to have this love of God perfected in us that we too, which is what we want to do, we too would have confidence for the day 
of judgment. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning and come to understand rightly in our text is what does John mean by perfect love? You ever read this passage and wonder what exactly he's getting at? You're not the only one. What does it mean by perfect love? What does he mean by love being, in verse 17, love being perfected in or with us? If your assurance or confidence in the day of judgment in some way somehow depends on the love of God being made perfect in you, then we want to make sure that we understand rightly exactly what that means to have that love perfected in us. So let's start by setting, setting in our minds what John doesn't mean by this phrase. Uh, what he does not mean is that we as believers can have confidence in the day of judgment only if our love for God and for the brethren is perfect and without any lack or shortcoming. If that's what John is saying, he might as well have not written the letter, including himself. Even the Apostle John could not, and neither could the Apostle Paul or anyone else, claim in that sense of the term to have had the love of God in them perfected. Is there anyone in this room, no matter how long you've been a believer, that can look yourself in the mirror and say, I have had the love of God in my life towards God and towards other believers, utterly perfected. No, in fact, if you remember back in 1 John 1, the first chapter of the book, what does he say about even believers? If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us and we deceive ourselves. So John, John in no way is preaching or teaching perfectionism. The Bible does not teach perfectionism. The only day in which uh, you will come to perfection in the Lord is the day that Christ calls you home or comes again. That is when, that's the only perfection the Bible teaches, is that you are, you are made complete in Christ as far as your justification, but you will only be sinlessly perfect when you are finally in the presence of your Lord and your Savior. So this, this love being perfected in us is not about us having no lack or no shortcoming uh, in our love. Again, if that would be the case, John would be un undermining and contradicting the very point of the entire letter, which he tells us in chapter 5, verse 13, uh, is the whole point of the letter is that you may know you have eternal life if you believe in Christ. He would be undermining that very thing. Uh, if, if we need to have our love to be perfect in the sense of actually being without any kind of spot, uh, none of us would ever be able to have assurance. That would be the result of such a thing. John Stott writes this. He says, John is not suggesting that any Christian's love could in this life be flawlessly perfect, but rather developed and mature, set fixedly upon God. And I think that's exactly what, what the Apostle John is talking about. Not, not perfect in the sense of no lack, no spot, no defect, but developed and mature and complete in that way. Um, the word in the Greek that John uses here that's translated perfect in verse or perfected in verse 17 has the idea of something being brought to completion or maturity. That's the idea he has in mind here. All believers are meant to come to maturity in the faith. That should be your goal, not perfection in the faith, although you should press forward towards it. And the same is, is true as well. In, in our love, in the same sense. Our love is to be made mature and complete in this life, and it's only perfect in that sense in the next. 
So John is also not in any way teaching salvation by works here. That's something that we always, you know, that's kind of our, um, as even as Christians sometimes, we slip into that kind of thinking. But it's kind of our default setting as sinners is somehow to, to imagine that we save ourselves. Every cult, every false religion, even the nominally Christian ones in this world, when you boil the whole thing down, it's about you saving yourself. That's, it's not what the gospel teaches at all, and John isn't teaching that uh, either. He's not saying that if we want to have no reason to fear the coming judgment on the day when Christ returns, that our love for God and our love for neighbor must be perfect and without defect. Again, if that were the case, no one would ever have any confidence to stand in the day of judgment if that were the case. So what does such perfect love look like? What is the love that John is, is, is encouraging us toward? How do we as believers in Christ attain such love? To see the flow and force of John's logic, we're going to look at real quick again at verses 16 and 17 together. Uh, look there real, real here in a moment. John says there, so we have come to know, past tense, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Do you see kind of what, where he's progressing in his thought here? In other words, it is by your and mine abiding in love that we abide in God and he in us, verse 16. And it is by this, that's what by this is referring to, what he just said. It's by that, by means of that, abiding in love, that love is perfected with us. So what does it mean to have the love of God perfected in us? It means to abide in love. That's really all he, he, that's really all he is saying uh, here in our text. And notice... Notice where this love starts. Where does this love that's being perfected with us or in us start? It starts not with us, not with you or me. It starts with God. It starts not with our love for God and our love for the brethren, but with God's love for us in Jesus Christ. John reminds us of that uh, in verse 16. Remember what he said? He said, so we have come to know, past tense, and to believe the love that God has for us. That's where it starts. That is the foundation of everything else that follows. Believing in God's love for us in Christ comes first, and it is through that faith that we are saved in Christ. And as always, you know, we have to make sure that we don't put, you know, to use the old saying, we don't put the cart before the horse. That we don't put the cart before the horse when it comes to our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way of salvation. What does John say, as if, in case we missed the point, what does John say in verse 19? We love or we love him, uh, what? Because he, God, Jesus Christ, loved us first. Which comes first, our love for God and, and our brethren or God's love for us? God's love for us comes first and is the cause of everything else that follows. And remember that John is speaking of our love for him and for the brethren as the evidence, as the evidence or proof of us having been saved and abiding in God, not as the means unto that salvation. There's a big difference between those two things. John isn't saying 
Abide in love of God and of the brethren, and then you will be saved and have confidence in the day of salvation, the day of judgment. He's saying that is the evidence of the work of God in your life as a believer. It is the proof, it is a support of your assurance, not the foundation of it. Uh, John Calvin uh, puts it well when he says this. He, he, he describes John's argument here. He says, then God's love to us is what is to be understood here. He says it is perfected because it is abundantly poured forth and really given that it appears to be complete. But he asserts that no others are partakers of this blessing, but those who by being conformed to God prove ourselves or prove themselves to be his children, then he says, it is then an argument taken from what is an inseparable condition. What he means by that is, an inseparable condition is not the cause of something, it is the necessary result of something. It, it, it will always be found together with it, with its cause. You know, there's an old saying attributed to Martin Luther that faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is what? You know what the rest of it is? is the faith that saves is never alone. You're not saved by works. You're not saved by your obedience, by your sanctification in a sense. But the faith that saves always comes with repentance. Are you saved? Do you, do you trust in your repentance? No. But saving faith will always be accompanied by a sincere repentance from sin. Repentance, you could say, to use John Calvin's words there, is an inseparable condition of salvation. It comes along with faith. So John is not speaking here in our text of a cause and effect, but an inseparable condition. There's a big difference between those things. What John is saying is that all who know the Lord Jesus by faith will necessarily abide in love. Why? Because they believe and are born again by the work of the Spirit of God. Those two things must and will go together. Well, the second thing we're going to look at this morning, at least briefly, and our text closely follows upon the first. What does John mean when he tells us that perfect love casts out fear? What does that mean? As we saw earlier in the quote from F.F. From Bruce, he said Christian confidence and Christian love go together. And so love and fear or dread, or in a sense, you could say they are mutually exclusive. You can have one or the other, but you will not have both. Uh, John Stott writes again, he says, the two things, fear and love, the two are as incompatible as oil and water. We can love and reverence God simultaneously, and he cites Hebrews 5.7, but we cannot approach him in love and hide from him in fear at the same time. You know, the word fear has different uses and meanings in scripture, and very often the Bible talks, and we just had the men's breakfast, we spent how many months you know, one, one time a month. But how many months do we look at the subject of the fear of the Lord? The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, the Bible in the Old Testament says that, that the whole duty of man is to what? Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. In the book of Ecclesiastes it tells us that. So there is a kind of fear of the Lord that is, that is uh, at, given to us and is in, exhorted us to to fear God in that way, but he's talking about, in that case, he talks about love and reverence, uh, but the fear that, that we are, that does not go together with the love of God is what Stott calls about, uh, talks about when he says, 
hiding from him in fear at the same time. It's that dread or terror of the Lord that love doesn't go with that. You can't be terrified of something and love something in the same way and at the same time. Uh, again, the fear that John speaks of in our text is not, not the kind of fear of the Lord that the scripture often commends to us. He's not saying you won't have the fear of the Lord uh, in that sense if you love God. Uh, that's the hallmark of Christian piety, that kind of fear of the Lord. He's talking in our text about the dread and terror uh, that the unbeliever faces at the prospect of God's just judgment on the last day. That's the fear he's talking about in our text. That's the kind of fear that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10 through 11. I'm going to read the King James because of the way they word it. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that uh, he has done, to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. Here it is. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Paul doesn't just say fear. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust are made manifest in your consciences. So one of the things that motivated Paul and influenced the way that he preached the gospel was knowing the terror of the Lord, knowing what people that are outside of the Lord will face on the day of judgment was part of the reason and part of the way that Paul proclaimed the good news of Christ. He did not hide or water down or downplay in any way the truth of the judgment to come. It was one of the main, you could say it was one of the main things he preached about in the book of Acts. It talked about him preaching about the judgment that was and is to come. Some of you might be familiar with uh, the, the organization or the program called Evangelism Explosion. Uh, a number of years ago, you might remember Gary Cast, Dr. Gary Cast preaching up here, and he did a sermon on, they have a, if you ever look on their website, they have a video, I won't rehash it here, but it's, it's you have the gospel in the palm of your hand, and it's the fi your five, well, four fingers and a thumb. Each, each finger on your hand represents something in the gospel. But they are also known, uh, that organization was started by James Kennedy, uh, pastor for a long time at Coral Ridge Presbyterian PCA Church in Fort Lauderdale. And what Evangelism Explosion is about is it was founded uh, to equip believers to be able to share the gospel of Christ with unbelievers. That's their, that's their sole purpose is to help people like us that aren't good at evangelism to be equipped to at least do it, to be confident enough to share the gospel with those around us. And one of the things that that organization has become known for is what we call sometimes the two diagnostic questions that they present. Um, incidentally, if you're a member of this church, if you, if you joined this church any time in the last decade, I would say, plus... Uh, you might remember actually being asked these questions as part of your elder interview. We ask these, these very things during the interview process. Just It's an opportunity for us to, to be sure to know someone actually professes faith in Christ. And here's the two questions. Number one, do you know for sure that when you die, you are going to be with God in heaven? So do you, I almost want to say, tell me, you know, I won't ask you to respond, but. Do you know for sure that when you die, you're going to be with God in heaven? Two, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? You see the connection between these two things? 
What, what is your answer to those questions? Think about that. What would you say to those questions? I hope that the, question, the first question, you'd have a hearty yes. I know when I die, I know where I'm going. But the second question, what's the purpose of that? The first question is really about, to use John's words, having confidence in the day of judgment. Do you know for sure that when you die, you'll be with the Lord in heaven? I hope that you can all say yes to that this morning. But the second question is really asking about the basis for your assurance in the first question. In other words, one, do you know for sure when you die, you're going to go to heaven and be with the Lord forever? You say yes. The second question is, okay, why? What is the reason for that confidence? What are you basing that confidence on? Uh, why do you believe that when you die, you'll be with the Lord in heaven? How would you answer that question? Maybe if you've done any kind of evangelism kind of work, you've noticed people answer that sort of question in a lot of different ways, some of which are kind of shocking. Um, would you say that you're going to go to heaven when you die because you're a good person? Usually if that's your mentality, you, you like to measure yourself against other people. I used to call this the I used to call it the Oprah Winfrey effect. Whatever the whatever the talk show is now, where the train wreck comes out, and everybody goes, "Oh, look at this one." What what's the what's the real reason that you? Well, I want to ask why you watch that. Everybody watches train wrecks, but what do you do? You're, what you're doing probably internally, even if you don't realize, is going. I thought I was bad. Look at this one, <laughs> right? You compare yourself, and you're like, "I you know I don't feel so bad about myself uh, anymore. I feel I feel pretty good about myself right about now." So do you think you're going to heaven because you're a good person? Do you think you're going to heaven when you die because you try to live a basically good moral life and aren't as bad as some other people? Do you think you're going to heaven because you're religious? I would argue every single person walking the earth, they may not be part of an organized religion, but everyone is religious in some way about some thing. Or like a lot of people, do you think that all people just go to heaven when they die because they die? R.C. Sproul used to sort of sarcastically call this justification by death. Well, everybody, they're in a better, no matter who it is, no matter how they live, no matter what they did or didn't believe, they would say, oh, so-and-so's in a better place. Got a soundtrack behind me here. Um, well, if, if that's the case, if you're depending on those kinds of things, you will have no peace of conscience at the thought of the day of judgment. You cannot help but have fear and terror at the prospect of that great day when the Lord Jesus comes again uh, if you are depending upon your own works to be right with God when Christ returns who is the judge of the living and the dead. Uh, only by faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in him alone can you have peace with God and so have no fear at the thought of Christ coming again in judgment. Remember what Rob prayed about the evil one always trying to uh, cause problems? It seems like uh, we've got. Yeah. The gospel's being proclaimed. What can we do to possibly interrupt that? Um, they probably don't know, but um, yeah. It's only by faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in Him alone that we can have peace with God and have no fear at the thought of the coming judgment. Why, why is that? We have no righteousness of our own by which to stand before a holy God. Isaiah uh, chapter 64 verse 6 says this, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy 
rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Not Think about what he just said there. Isaiah's not saying just our sins and iniquities. He says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Now you might be saying to yourself, why is that word plural? Righteousnesses. Isaiah's talking about the thing, whatever those things are that we depend upon in our foolishness to be made right with God, the things that we think are so good about us, we don't just need to repent of our sins. We need to repent of, of the good things about us that we think give us a right to stand before God in the day of judgment. All our righteousnesses or righteous things, deeds, Isaiah says, are as filthy rags. Only the cross of Jesus Christ, only his perfect spotless righteousness accounted to us by faith alone enables us to stand firm and have no fear on that day. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ alone that we are justified and have peace with God. And so I'll ask this morning, kind of like that evangelism explosion question, what are you trusting in? That's what the second question is really saying. What are you trusting in to make you right with God? Are you trusting in anything about yourself? If so, you should not be. It, it will not, you will not be able to stand in that great day on your own. Or are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone and his death on the cross and his spotless righteousness put to your account by faith alone? That's the only way to stand before God on that great day is in Christ and received and accepted by God and forgiven in him. Well, last but not least, what is the point that John has been driving to this whole time throughout this passage and throughout the entire epistle in some ways? It is that love and assurance go together. That's his point. Love and assurance go together, and this necessarily involves our love for the brethren. That has really been John's highlight throughout this, and emphasis throughout much of this letter. Look at verses 19 to 21 again. He says, we love why? We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. So when you think about the love of God being completed in us, I, I think part of what John has been saying the whole time is that the love of God is completed. It's brought to where it's supposed to be intended to go when we love each other. We cannot claim to really love God at all if we don't love the brethren, is what John says here. And even quotes the command of Christ saying, we have this commandment from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So love and assurance go together. Love for God and love for their brother must also go together. In fact, what John is saying here in many ways is that our love for the brethren, love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, is the evidence of a true love for God and of his love for us. He's saying, how do you know that you've really experienced and know the love of God in Jesus Christ? By loving the brethren. How do you know you love God? By loving the brethren as well, by loving his children, your brothers and sisters in the Lord. 
In other words, where love for the brethren is absent, so also is love for God. John goes so far as to say that anyone who professes or says that they love God while hating their brothers is what? A liar. Like he doesn't mince words. He says it as blatantly as, as he can. How can he say that? Because as he says there, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot, it's an impossibility, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Just as our Lord Jesus taught us that loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves are together the great commandment. Remember Matthew 22, 37 to 40, he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he doesn't give them one, he gives them both. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two things hang all the law and the prophets. That's a, a way of saying at the time, all the Bible they had. The whole Old Testament depended upon loving God and loving your neighbor. Jesus taught that loving God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength and all these things were the thing that all of Scripture hangs upon. Uh, and, and so if you're lacking assurance, if you are struggling with doubt now or at any time, may I ask you one thing? It's not the only thing to ask, but it's one thing according to our text. How is your love for the brethren? I often say this from time to time. You know, love for the brethren can be measured in many ways. Not the only way, but one of those ways is diligent attendance upon public worship. It's hard to love the brethren when you're never around them. And in some ways, when you avoid them like the plague, it's a bad sign. It, you know, they might not be Gnostics, but people that say, oh, I love God, but oh, I hate the church. Well, that, that doesn't work. The scripture does not condone such, such a thing. And so one of the places to start, it's not the only thing, is to spending time with them in public worship and elsewhere. How is your love for their brethren, I ask? You know, sometimes people struggle with a lack of assurance. And one of the reasons for it is they, they avoid the church like the plague. Where are you going to grow in assurance if not to the ministry of the word and the sacraments? The Lord's table, we're not having that this morning, but the Lord's table was given to strengthen us, among other reasons, to give him to strengthen us in our assurance. Are you sincerely and fervently loving your brothers and sisters in the Lord? If our love for the brethren is evidence of our abiding in the love of God, as John says it is, and if that is to lead to a strengthening of our assurance, then how fervently ought you and I to seek to grow in grace and love for each other? I believe that's the, really what John has been saying throughout our, this, this chapter in many ways. You know, if there is one clear and obvious takeaway or application, uh, even an imperative to our text, you know, we always want to apply what Scripture says, right? I think it's love of the brethren. And, it, you know, John says as much back in 1 John 4, verse 7, doesn't he? Which this passage we're looking at is not isolated from that. It's all coming from that. Look at 1 John 4, 7 one more time. He says, Beloved, what? Let us love one another. Why? For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He doesn't just say the second half. Hey, you know, if you know God and love God, you'll love the brethren. Because of that, what does he do? He exhorts us further in it. 
Let us love one and he includes himself. Let us love one another. Why? Because that. Because love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We love both God and each other because he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so let us now make every effort to walk in love and to grow in our love for one another, for the brethren. And as Paul says in Galatians 6.10, he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen.